This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. I'm Adam Cano, and joining me today is Rachel Oswald. She is the new chair of the National Press Club's Press Freedom Team and a reporter at CQ Roll Call here in the D.C. area. Rachel, thanks so much for joining me. Good to be here. On day one of Jen Judson's NPC presidency, she called on the Biden administration to prioritize the release of Austin Tice. What is the latest on Austin's plight and efforts to get him released? Austin has been missing in Syria since summer 2012. It's coming on a decade now. The club continues to prioritize securing his release and his return to his family, who, as you know, have been just working around the clock, you know, since he went missing to try to bring him home. I'll put a shout out for the uh, change.org petition the club has. We're just shy of 150,000 signatures, so we want to get that above 150,000. Everything we're doing really is trying to elevate Austin Tice's name in the public sphere, in the public awareness, with the thinking behind that, that if the American public is talking about this and calling for this, it will cause the Biden administration to, to by necessity, prioritize this in how it looks at Syria um, and its broader hostage negotiations. The press club had a pretty successful virtual run for Austin last year. We're looking to build on that and expand it. Last year we had runners participating in 20 states in four different countries, so this year we want more on both of that. Some small positive news, Austin's mom, Deborah Tice, who's a friend of the press club, she did have that December meeting with White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, which had been something the family had been pressing for, again, to to get Austin's name at the top of the mind for the administration and their Syria policy. My understanding is that, and, and I think she said this, that Deborah had a proposal that she made to the Biden administration, hoping that it could secure the release of her son. You know, again, the issues for our audience are that we do not have diplomatic relations with Syria right now because of uh, Bashar Assad's atrocities committed against the Syrian people in the Arab Spring protests. We have imposed multiple rounds of sanctions that have really strangulated the Syrian economy. And so even as Assad has largely brutally squelched the rebellion against him, he has been unable to rebuild his country. And for that to happen, U.S. sanctions relief would be part of it. So a lot of this is, you know, happening behind the scenes. But the issues are that we have sanctions on Assad for human rights reasons. Austin Tice's case is a human rights issue. So you're seeing human rights issues you know, kind of like, I don't want to say competing against each other, but this is very thorny, you know, and also, again, the United States maintains we don't negotiate for the release of hostages because we don't want to incentivize further taking of hostages and troubling. This has become not just a thing that non-state actors like the Taliban or al-Qaeda do, but something that nation states are increasingly doing, and we don't want to, the U.S. argues that we don't want to incentivize it. Also on the topic of of human rights uh, and another area of concern for the club is the high murder rate among Mexican journalists. So can you talk a little bit about why journalism there is so dangerous and what we at the club hope to achieve? 
What's happening in Mexico is beyond disturbing. They're our southern neighbor. We do so much trade, uh, commerce, people-to-people visits with them. They just on Tuesday had their eighth journalist of the year assassinated. Armando Linares, the director of the news outlet Monitor Michoacan, he had been uh, investigating corruption and he was found shot to death on Tuesday. We the Press Freedom Team, the Press Club, and the Journalism Institute have issued multiple statements uh, condemning the murders of these journalists and more specifically urging the Mexican government to take this matter seriously. We do believe that there is a culture of impunity that comes from the very top. When Mexican President uh, Lopez Obrador criticizes the press, uh, criticizes anything he doesn't like about the reporting about him, argues that there's a, a soft coup against him because of critical reporting, both from both from journalists and from civil civil society, criticizing some of his illiberalism that is growing. It has to send a message to the greater Mexican entities that, you know, carry out these assassinations. Most of the journalists who've been killed were covering corruption and the drug cartels. And if you're hearing a message from the top that, you know, journalists are the worst, I would conclude if I were a cartel that, you know, the Mexican government may not prioritize justice if I want to, you know, get rid of a troublesome meddling journalist who's exposing, you know, my crimes. So we on the press freedom team, we're in talks with other uh, press freedom organizations about ways we can collaborate together to jointly amplify our concerns about this issue to American stakeholders who have a lot of connections with Mexico. Again, Mexico is a major trading partner, humongous people-to-people exchanges on a daily basis. What happens in Mexico affects the United States, and we're, we're thinking of ways we can elevate this issue in bilateral relations, because it's not just a press issue. It's, it's about the quality of Mexico's democracy, you know, right now. So that will be continuing throughout the year, I, I expect. I want to talk a little more about that notion of collaboration, because it's something that Jen raised when I spoke with her a few weeks ago, the notion that we as the club can do even more in conjunction with other like-minded organizations than, of course, we can on our own. So can you talk just a little more about that, maybe not just in the context of Mexico, but more broadly in terms of press freedom? We have had longstanding uh, good relations with a number of uh, professional press freedom organizations, Reporters Without Borders, Committee to Protect Journalists, those come top of the mind. They have staffers who are club members and so regularly sit in on our meetings. We're also thinking about ways we can collaborate more for events focusing on specific issues going around the world. There are a number of groups that that do that specifically right now in Ukraine. But then also just with inside the club, um, there are a couple of committees that we've partnered with in the past, the International Journalists Committee, professional development, um, broadcast team. Um, I think there are a number of ways we could partner together this year for both trainings and panel discussions about about shared interests. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine, obviously, and, and Russia as well. But before I get to that, anything else in terms of specific journalists or regions that you wanted to hit on? We remain concerned about Hayes Fan, uh, the 2021 uh, Obashan Award for Foreign Journalists. Uh, she has been detained without charges in Beijing since December 2020. 
She is a Bloomberg News reporter and producer. When she was detained, it was reported that the Chinese government was accusing her of um, doing something to um, threaten national security, which is a pretty, pretty broad thing, the way the Chinese Communist Party interprets it. It could be anything that the Chinese Communist Party didn't like or saw as threatening to the Chinese Communist Party. So we remain concerned about her, that we haven't yet seen charges, that we don't yet know if she's going to have a trial date. We're just concerned. And we know Bloomberg is doing a lot to try to support her in the ways they can. And, and we will continue to do that as well. Among the most issues of concern at the moment, obviously, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the chilling effect that we've seen on media within Russia, laws being passed that further stymie that. We saw the brave action by uh, one producer, uh, Marina Osinikova, who actually, you know, on Russia's Channel One newscast, actually got on the air with a sign and held it up behind the on-air talent. So can you talk a little more about the state of journalism in Russia and also other areas of conflict? Yeah, what's happening in Russia right now is so disheartening um, when you think about everything that's happened since the beginning of the 1990s when you had a lot of independent, feisty uh, news outlets establish uh, TV stations, radio stations, you know, digital outlets. As you said, the Kremlin um, the rubber stamp parliament recently after the war, after the invasion, they passed a new law that essentially criminalizes what they call fake news, but what is actually fact-based reporting. You're not really allowed to talk about the war. You're not really allowed to talk about anything anything material to, to Russia's war on its neighbor and just anything generally critical. Um, we, we, we expect that would include criticism of how sanctions are impacting daily life, uh, questioning of the wisdom of President Vladimir Putin's decision to launch an unprovoked war on again on his neighbor. So that's very disheartening. Um, it was just like a wall just went up. And, and long term, a question I have is, is this Russia now pivoting toward more of a Chinese great firewall framework? where despite everything else that was very troubling about life in Russia, they had a pretty free internet. And if they move away from that and everything is kind of siloed and you know, uh, average Russians don't know how to go about getting news if they don't know about a VPN, if they don't, if they don't have the disposable income to kind of, you know, do the things to overcome, you know, state level um, barriers. Um, it, it will just further worsen the information and civic literacy climate in Russia, again, at a time when their country is just you know, trying to essentially single-handedly rewrite, you know, the rules of the post-World War II order. So how this plays out for the Russian people long-term is very consequential. Again, do they move toward more of a Chinese Communist Party model framework? And again, more like a Soviet framework of dominating all information. I I don't know, and it's worrisome. I would commend listeners to um, listen to the previous episode of this podcast, my colleague, Irv Chapman interviewed uh, Lucian Kim, who's very knowledgeable about uh, Russia, having spent a number of years there as a Moscow correspondent, and talks uh, quite passionately about, like you said, that dichotomy between where Russia was in the 90s in terms of having a, uh, a vibrant and dynamic press environment compared to you know what it's become, uh, sadly, in recent months. 
press freedom, unfortunately, not just an international concern, a domestic one as well. Uh, heightened criticism of the media from from the left, from the right, and now even permeating into the legal system, right? A lot more uh, lawsuits related to defamation and bringing in the whole notion of uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. And so can you talk a little more about what, what that, the implications of that and what you and, and the press freedom team are looking at? Yeah, I mean, this is a really big issue domestically. Again, for our listeners, um, New York Times versus Sullivan was a landmark case for First Amendment freedom of speech. And it's kind of the bedrock that so much of our our journalism assumptions have been built on over the last 50, 60 years since it was decided. It established the precedent that if you're going to argue that somebody defamed you, you have to uh, show that they did it with actual malice, you know, Um, which can be really hard to prove in a court of law. And so that has been something that has been seen as like a a cloak of safety for American journalists and and foreign journalists working here for a long time covering our issues. But what we've seen happen um, in recent years is, you know, there has been a rise of um, a lot of, of misinformation and disinformation and bad faith actors using that to kind of uh, disseminate and amplify um what are bad faith attacks? And so what is happening now is you have multiple lawsuits working their way through the judicial system against several uh, right-wing news outlets, Project Veritas, uh, One American News, Fox News, Gateway Pundit. They're all being sued for, you know, basically defamation. Um, Some of them over what I will call lies that they propagated um, about the 2020 election being stolen from President Trump and that, you know, there was massive electoral fraud committed. The New York Times had had a very good article about this a few days ago, so I'd recommend reading it. And they talked to these First Amendment legal scholars who normally are in the business of defending journalists. But now they're arguing that New York Times versus Sullivan maybe went too far if it empowered anybody to think that they can say anything, you know, just willfully negligent, um, completely reckless, knowing it's knowing it's not true and not being worried that they would be held accountable in a court of law for it. And so what you what you do have now is because of all of those lies about um, the outcome of the 2020 election, you just have an unprecedented number of Americans questioning whether President Joe Biden is the legitimate president, you know, and so that kind of goes to the very heart of, you know, our democracy here. And so I don't yet know how I feel about this. You know, I had always taken comfort in Sullivan, but I also am disturbed by, um, you know, disinformation and um, conspiracy theories. And I don't like them being amplified and people feeling like they can do that without any kind of accountability. You know, people who are stakeholders, people who should know better, you know? So I don't yet know what my thinking on is this, but I do know I'm interested in convening experts together to track this issue. We've done that in the past. We did that before the 2016 election. We had a panel when then-candidate Donald Trump had been saying he wanted to reopen Sullivan, and he had been well-known for his attacks on the press. So we wanted to explore whether that was feasible. And at the time, that panel concluded, probably not. But since then, we've got three different Supreme Court justices who were appointed by President Trump, and it is a different Supreme Court. So I think it's time to, you know, reopen the question about Sullivan, you know, for good or for bad. 
So you take that plus the developments overseas, you bring all that together, your first year as chair of the press freedom team at the press club. What is what is your message to other committee leaders, to members of the club, to journalists and communicators listening to this podcast about what all of us should be doing to support your work um, and the work that benefits democracy and freedom? I would say stay engaged, stay literate, stay up to date. I know it's exhausting. There's so much there's so much information, news stories coming out all the time, and you really do have to allow yourself to unplug. But please continue to follow these core issues um, related to press freedom. I've been doing um, press freedom volunteering for almost a decade um, on this committee, and every year it keeps getting worse. And that's really sad. But, you know, I got to tell you, we on the committee and the Journalism Institute and the press school leaders appreciate all the support from our members. We know this is a priority for our members. And that, honestly, it really is fuel. It's really fuel when when I get tired, you know, but it's, it is fuel. We will end that on a positive note. Rachel, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Rachel Oswald is the new chair of the National Press Club's Press Freedom Team. You can follow her coverage on Twitter at Oswald Rachel. I'm Adam Cano. Thanks again for listening. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.